Wow, thank you, Ronnie. Thank you, praise team. You may have a seat. Good morning, Spanish River Church. It is so good to see you this morning. For those of you who are joining us online, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, are you guys ready to study the Bible? Yeah, all right. Turn with me to your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. We'll pray and we'll jump into this great text this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that not only have you given us your word, but you have given us yourself. And it is through your word and through your spirit that we can encounter you personally. And so Holy Spirit, this morning as we study your word, may you make these words come alive in our hearts and transform our lives forever for your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, we are in week two uh, in our series entitled Relentless Pursuit. And this series is taking us through the great Old Testament book of Jonah. And I think the fair question to ask is why Jonah? I mean, isn't Jonah some wild story about a man getting swallowed by a big fish and then barfed up on some beach somewhere? I mean, what does that have to do with my life today. Well, I'm here this morning to tell you it has everything to do with your life this morning. It's a story all about sin and grace. Sin is us running from God, and grace is about God chasing us down, hunting us down in love, and rescuing us from ourselves and sin. Now, I think one of the reasons we love the story of Jonah so much is not just because it's a wild story about someone getting swallowed by a well, but it's a story of the outrageously wild nature of God's grace. And so you may never have thought of God's grace in this way, but it is wild. I mean, grace is one of the most transformational words as found in all of Scripture. Now, I use this language to jolt you from any unbiblical notion about what true grace is. Grace is not safe. It is not just what people get when they're good. It doesn't let sin slip by. It's far wilder than that. Grace unsettles everything. Grace overflows the banks. Grace messes up your hair, as one author writes. Grace is not tame. Do you grasp the depth and the breadth and the power of God's grace? What we're going to discover, or perhaps for some of us rediscover, that to the degree that you grasp the depth and the beauty and the power of God's grace is to the degree that you will be transformed by it. So let me ask you, has, God, has God's grace gone wild in your life? I mean, when it does, it will wildly wreck you. And then it will rescue you. And then it will redeem you. Now, for some of you, you recognize this pattern of grace in your life. You've experienced that, and it's, it will help you make sense of what God is doing in your life. And so as we read this first chapter of Jonah, what I want you to notice from last week is it was... Uh, uh, 
a chapter that unfolds at a rapid pace. I mean, as Jonah uh, is called by God and then runs to God, he runs down to Joppa, runs down to a boat, and is cast out of a boat down into the ocean. It's this rapid spiral downward of God running from, or Jonah running from God. And then we get to chapter two, and it all of a sudden just goes into slow motion. I mean, all the action comes to a sudden halt. So that Jonah can experience God in a life-altering way. He's going to experience the outrageous nature of God's grace. Now between the time that Jonah is swallowed by a big fish and he's barfed up onto a beach, there is this powerful prayer that Jonah prays in the deepest, darkest despair Uh, the deepest, darkest pit that he could find himself in. I think so often when we think about the story of Jonah, we think about him getting swallowed by a whale, and we think about him getting barfed up on some beach, but we miss this prayer. And at the heart of the book of Jonah is this prayer of deliverance, a prayer to experience God's wrecking and rescuing and renewing grace. And so let me read it to you. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord uh, out of my distress, and he answered me. And out of the belly of Sheol, Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep and into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me in all your waves, and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, the weeds wrapped around my head. And at the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And then in verse 8, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But, with, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then in verse 10, it says, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. The very first thing I want you to see in this text is that God's grace will wreck us. God's grace will wreck us. It will bring us to the end of ourselves. It brings you into a deep dependence of God. The first chapter ends with Jonah being swallowed by a big fish. Look back at the last verse of of, uh, chapter 1. It says that, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Notice that Jonah tells us that the Lord appointed a great fish. Now, I don't want you to miss this very important truth about God's grace. It is God's grace that brings us to the end of a self. 
Jonah exposes the truth to us in his prayer for deliverance. Look at verse 3. He says, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Notice that Jonah declares that you cast me into the deep. This is God's grace towards Jonah. Notice it's God's waves, it's God's billows passing over Jonah. God wrecking you is a means of bringing you to the end of yourself so that you will be radically and completely dependent upon him. This is the means by which you come to Jesus Christ in salvation. You see, grace wrecks us in wildly unexpected ways. Grace is offensive because it exposes the true condition of our souls before we experience salvation. But there is nothing in it that gratifies the pride of man. It announces that unless we are saved by grace, we are not saved at all. It says, it declares that apart from Christ, apart from the unspeakable gift of God's grace, that the state of every man is desperate and hopeless. Now, nothing is more difficult for us to get our minds around than the unconditional grace of God. You see, Jonah was all but dead. I mean, he was in the depths of the ocean. I mean, he says, I'm at the root of the mountain. I'm not even at the foot, at the base of the mountains. I'm at the roots of the mountains. I'm about as deep as you can get. And then he's in the belly of a fish. There is no hope in and of himself to save himself. He is at the bottom of his run from God's presence. Now he's beyond saving himself. Grace exposes the true condition of every single one of our hearts apart from Christ. And quite frankly, it offends us. Now the grace of God addresses men as guilty and condemned perishing criminals. Grace will require you to face your unworthiness without ever feeling unloved. That's the power, the wildness of God's grace. It's how we come to Christ, by seeing ourselves as sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Now, grace offends us because we can't earn it. It's unconditional. We are actually conditioned against unconditionality. I mean, think about it. We are, we are told in a thousand different ways that accomplishment precedes acceptance, that achievements precede approval. You see, society demands a two-way love. Everything's conditional. If you achieve, then you will receive meaning, purpose, security, respect, love, and on and on and on. We are conditioned towards unconditionality. And yet, grace is a one-way love. Grace is a love that seeks you out when you have nothing to offer, to give in return. This is the story of Jonah. Grace is love, is, is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. This is the story of Jonah. Grace is being loved when you're unlovable. This is the story of Jonah. This can be our story. And even those of us who have tasted of the radical saving grace of God intuitively find it difficult not to put conditions 
on grace. The, the truth is that a yes grace but posture actually robs us from the power, the pulsating power of the Holy Spirit in our everyday lives. Grace is radically unbalanced. It's one way. It has no buts. It's unconditional, uncontrollable, unpredictable, and undomesticated. It's wild. It is in despair at the bottom of an overwhelming, suffocating ocean when his life was fainting away that Jonah experiences the powerful truth that grace not only wrecks, that it rescues. Grace wrecks, then rescues. Look with me at verse 6. Jonah prays, yet you, yet God, yet you brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. It is in the pit that Jonah is experiencing God's saving grace. When Jonah was in his deepest despair, he experiences, yet God. Now the two greatest words a person dead in their sins can hear is these two words of verse 6. Yet you, yet God. Despite our being dead in sin, God rescues us. I want you to see this clearly this morning. God rescues. Jonah calls out to God and he delivers. Now, grace is wildly scandalous. It gives salvation to the undeserving. Grace rescues us from sin and death. He rescues for no reason that we can offer, but surely out of him being rich in mercy. And because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Now the penalty of sin is death. We see this evident everywhere in our lives. When a wrong is committed, death comes. We are the walking dead. We are spiritual zombies apart from Christ. So it is a work of grace that brings within us new life. It is grace that justifies us. Nothing in and of ourselves make you acceptable to God. He pours out his saving grace upon us in an unconditional way. Upon undeserving sinners like me and like you. It is grace period. It is grace, period. He rescues us, not because you deserve it, but because of his grace. And so the question I think we have to ask ourselves this morning is, why is it that I, why is it that I don't experience the pulsating power of God's grace in my everyday life? Why is that? Well, Jonah gives us an answer in verse 8. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. For some of you who are carrying NIV translations, it translates it this way. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Like you clinging to idols forfeit the pulsating power of God's grace at work in your everyday lives. What we need to be rescued from the most are false saviors we cling to in times of distress. 
You see, God rescues us from these lesser things. Idolatry is a major theme throughout Scripture. You can't read the Bible for very long without being confronted with the sin of idolatry. Uh, John Calvin, the famous reformer, said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. In other words, our, our, our hearts are idol factories. Idols are false god or god substitute. You can't eliminate God without replacing it with a god substitute. The default mode of our hearts is to worship something, to put our hope, to put our, uh, our future, our security in something. That's how every single one of us are wired. Now, idolatry is finding your identity, value, and worth in what you do or accomplish or what you have, rather than putting it in who Christ is and what he has done and what he has accomplished for you on the cross. Now up front, idols will promise you life and life to its fullest, but in the end it will require of you to sacrifice everything. Now, we often don't see how futile our idols are until we find ourselves overwhelmed because our idols have let us down in some way. You see, the idols you cling to will ultimately sink you. That's what Jonah is telling us. He sees it at the bottom of an ocean in the belly of a well. He's saying, hold on to your idols and they will ultimately sink you. Now, most of us most of our distress comes from putting our trust in created things rather than our creator. This is often why we have anxiety, stress, and fear because our soul is crying out, uh, why have you put your hope in lesser things and fleeting things and temporal things? They will all fail us. And so Jonah comes to this conclusion in verse 8. He's saying created things can't save us, can't love us like our creator can. Idols can't love you with a steadfast love. And the more you cling to them, the more you forfeit the grace of God in your life. Now, we turn to them at first, sure, because we do feel loved initially. But because they are created things, they are temporal things, they are fleeting things, they are perishing things, they will eventually let us down. Now, only God through Jesus Christ can promise you steadfast love. Now, why is that? Why is that? Because God's love for us is rooted in grace. God's love for us is not dependent upon us, but dependent upon his son, Jesus Christ. God is eternal, so he loves us with an everlasting steadfast love. And Jonah is telling us that if you're clinging to something for your security or your hope or your salvation, and if it's not Jesus, it will actually sink you. You cannot cling to an idol and simultaneously have your, uh, your hands open to the wild nature of God's grace. Jonah comes to the point that he realizes that everything pales in comparison to his God. And so some of you this morning realize that you have never experienced God's rescuing grace. 
Grace is simply a gift to be received by trusting in faith in Jesus Christ to be your ultimate rescuer. But you must let go of all the other false saviors. Now you may be here and in, in your life in some way and somehow you may be feeling wrecked. Maybe that's why you're here because you're feeling wrecked. There's a part of your life that seems to be spiraling out of control. Your idol has failed you. You may be wrecked emotionally. You may be wrecked financially. You may be wrecked uh, relationally. Uh, Maybe you're struggling in your marriage. Maybe you're struggling with a child. Maybe it's a work relationship you're struggling with. You feel like part of your life is wrecked. It may be well that God is bringing you to the end of yourself so you can see that you need a rescuer not just to save you from your circumstances, but to save you from your sin, from trying to be your own savior, looking to something or someone else to be your savior. Jesus wants to rescue you from your idols. Now, for others of you, life is going really, really well, but yet deep down inside, you sense that something is missing. I I think people who despair battle with depression the most are those people who have gained everything. Like they can have access to anything this world offers. And yet when they have everything, they still feel like something is missing. You know what that something is? It is the wild nature of God's grace at work in your life that's missing. Now, Salvation by grace seems simple. It's actually hard because it requires us to come humbly and empty-handed to God. We earn nothing. Jesus earns it all. We boast in nothing. Jesus gets the boast in everything. Uh, We don't save ourselves. Jesus alone saves. Our response to the chaos should be one of calling out to God. Finally, Jonah is doing this. Are you calling out? God will hear your voice and deliver you. Which brings us to grace renews. The moment you receive grace for the very first time, it begins to change you from the inside out. It renews you. It radically reorients your focus and drive of your heart. And so how do you know you've truly experienced the renewing power of God's grace? Jonah tells us in verse 9, He goes, but I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah is describing a life captivated by God's grace, living a life of obedience to God. Jonah realized how far down sin had taken him and how God had pursued him and preserved him and it awakened a gratitude. Like, the only response to such amazing grace is gratitude. Now, I know I can hear, like, some of your objections to what I'm saying this morning. I've taught enough on grace. I've talked with enough people that you're going, Pastor Chan, like, if you preach grace too much, then that will enable sinful behavior. And I would argue if one has truly tasted of the sweetness and the riches of God's grace, that it would radically reorient their lives towards holiness. 
You see, where grace reigns, where grace overflows the banks, where grace reigns, grace trains towards holiness and righteousness. Now, here's why Jonah can say, with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. I want you to see that Jonah hasn't been rescued from the big fish yet. Notice this in this prayer when he's confessing this. He hasn't been freed from his circumstances yet. Verse 10 hasn't occurred yet. He hasn't been barfed up on some beach. And yet he can say with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. How can he say that? He can say that because he knows that the salvation belongs to the Lord. Underline that sentence in your Bible. It is the entire theme of Jonah. In fact, it's the entire theme of all of Scripture. The work of salvation belongs to God from beginning to end. This is what salvation by grace is. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't work for it. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. Now, this truth has powerful implications for our everyday lives. If I was saved by good works, then there there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved by grace, then there is nothing that God cannot ask of me. If I'm a sinner saved by grace, if anything, I am more subject to the sovereign lordship of God. We come to know that if Jesus really has done all of this for us, we would not be our own. We would joyfully and gratefully belong to Jesus who provided all of this at infinite cost to himself. You see, the most liberating act of free, unconditional grace demands that the recipient give up control of his or her life. Now, is this a contradiction? No, because we are not in control of our lives to begin with. I mean, that's what we learned from chapter one, that Jonah was in control of nothing. We are all living for something, and we are controlled by that, whatever that something is, and that is the true Lord of our lives. The problem many of us have is the thing we are living for, the thing we are clinging to is sinking sinking us and keeping us from experiencing the rescuing and renewing grace of God. Jesus has full right to lay claim of your life because he has given himself at such an infinite cost so that you can be eternally and ultimately free. Now, the purpose of God's rescuing grace is so that you can experience God's renewing grace. Grace is too freeing to leave us in slavery of sin. It's too untamed to let our lust go unconquered. It's too compelling to let us uh, keep holding onto or clinging to our idols. Grace's, Grace's power is too uninhibited to not unleash in us a happiness for holiness. Now, Isaac Watts begins his famous hymn. You may remember it. He begins it singing, when I survey the wondrous cross on which 
the Prince of Glory died. And then he goes through those beautiful, rich words, and he comes to this conclusion at the end of his hymn. He says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's the outrageously wild nature of God's grace. When you are captivated truly by God's grace, that becomes your soul song. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And you sing that with incredible gratitude. Now, here's how chapter two ends. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Jonah is freed from sin and certain death. Jonah's passage through death and coming out alive is an image of the ultimate victory over the grave when, when Christ himself is raised from the dead. You see, Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jesus was buried in the belly of a well for three days because of his own sin. Jesus was buried in a tomb for three days because of our sin. And the only reason we can experience wrecking grace and rescuing grace and renewing grace is because the greater Jonah has overcome sin and death on our behalf. Now, my prayer is that you would not only know the outrageously wild nature of God's grace in your head, but that you would experience it in your heart. And so I want to close with a story. A friend of mine named Daniel Montgomery wrote a book entitled Proof, Finding the Freedom Through the Intoxicating Joy of Irresistible Grace. I love that title. His co-author Timothy Paul Jones tells this powerful story about his daughter, he writes, I never dreamed taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult or that such a trip would teach me so much about God's outrageous grace. Our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family, and I'm sure this couple had the best intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old into our home. For one reason or another, whenever our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she had done something wrong that precluded her presence from the trip. And so by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World, and she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades. But when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she had always been left on the outside. Once I found out about this history, Timothy writes, I made plans to take her to Disney World. I had mastered the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experiences that the prospect of seeing cast members in freakishly oversized mouse and duck, duck costumes could somehow turn children into squirming bundles of an emotional instability. What I didn't expect was that the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce a stream of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. 
In the month leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer and closer to the trip, her mutinies multiplied. The couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk to her about her latest escapades. I know what you're trying to do. I know what you're going to do, she stated flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? Now, Timothy responds, he says, the thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the Magic Kingdom. She had tried and failed the test several times before. And so she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. In retrospect, I was embarrassed to admit that in, my, in that moment, I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we are doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. Are you part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what the difference is between right and wrong, but you're a part of this family and we are not leaving you behind. I'd like to say her behavior grew better after that moment. They didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop along the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day that we had promised. And it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, and lots of lines mingled with just enough manufactured ma magic to consider maybe doing it again someday. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times. But her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked her, so how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her snuffed unicorn. And after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It's not because I am good. It's because I'm yours. That's the outrageously wild nature of God's grace. I hope that you will not only know it in your head, but that you will experience it in your heart. Will you stand with me? Heavenly Father, I confess that there are days that I forget that I'm yours. 
that I forget that I'm loved, not because what I do or don't do, but because of what Christ has done for me on the cross. Oh, Holy Spirit, more than anything, we need to know the outrageous, wild nature of your grace. And let it so saturate into our hearts and minds that it radically transforms us into living a life of gratitude. Living a life that is fully surrendered to you. Open-handed so that we can live under the waterfall, the never-ending waterfall of your grace. Our only response to that kind of grace is to worship our great Savior. Let's worship him.